There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. People are dying in the district. This something that's been going on for so long, you've gotten used to it. It's not even really scary anymore. It's, it's just a bit of a shock. It is sad, and it shouldn't be the norm. So far this year, homicides are up 19%, and violent crime is up 37% when compared to this time last year. It's a continuation of a trend we've seen since the pandemic. But most major cities throughout the country are actually seeing a decrease in crime this year. But the district isn't. Crime is just going up and up. Meanwhile, over the last six months, the D.C. Council, the mayor, and the chief of police have often stood at loggerheads over how to deal with this increase in crime. At the start of the year, I had former D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti on the show where he thought the D.C. Council was removed from the reality of crime in this city. I mean, there are a few people, you know, who are making some of these decisions that are out there when I'm out there two, three o'clock in the morning, standing over someone's child. Weeks later, I had the chair of the D.C. Council, Phil Mendelson, on the show, where he said the chief and the mayor didn't really understand what was going on in this city when it comes to violence. This is complex, and there's room for a lot of misunderstanding, and as a result, the chief was uneasy about it. I don't think the mayor fully understands. But despite the months of derision and disagreement between city officials, last week, they all kind of came together to pass an emergency crime bill. That was ushered in by Councilmember Brooke Pinto. Part of my goal here was to really bring folks together for a package that could make a difference today. She comes on the show to talk about how she struck a compromise between the mayor's proposals, the city council's, and what police really want. And more importantly, she tells us what's to come and how she plans to continue to change laws here in D.C. to make the city safer. Councilmember Brooke Pinto, welcome to the DMV Download Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. Great to be with you. So, Councilmember, as the head of the Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety in D.C., you know the tragic reality that crime is up in D.C. And what's worse is D.C. is really bucking a national trend. Almost all major cities are seeing decreases in these sorts of crimes. And all the while, there's been a lot of disagreement within the Wilson building over how to deal with this between the mayor, between the chair of the council and between council members themselves. But, you know, you really ushered in this new emergency crime bill that was passed almost unanimously last week. You know, to start, tell us how you kind of ushered this in and what changed the minds of so many members on the D.C. Council. Sure. So uh, when I think about what's happening in our community right now with public safety, it is unacceptable. We have really high rates of crimes of violence going on. We have over 127 people this year alone who have already been killed. Mm -hmm. 
And we are on track if we don't intervene now to have our third year in a row where over 200 DC residents were killed. And that would be the first time in two decades that we got to that terrible statistic. And so it's really important that we act with urgency. I am a believer and I always have been a believer that reducing crime and violence and improving public safety takes all of us. It takes our government partners. It also takes our schools. It takes our religious leaders. It takes our parents and families um, to be part of that partnership to really drive it down and build the type of community that all of us want to and deserve to live in in D.C. But when I think about my responsibility as the chair of the Committee on Judiciary and Public Safety on the council, it is very important to me that I lead the committee in a way that can bring folks along with us to making changes now that will improve public safety in our city because it cannot wait. And Brooke, before we get into the legislation and the details and the shifting political reality this all symbolizes, I'd like to ask you what you've learned from being on the ground and what you've heard from people. You know, we've been rattling off statistics here and talking about crime numbers, which is helpful to give us kind of a sense of where we are. But ultimately, it's impacting and hurting and tragically killing real people and real families. You know, what have you learned from the people on the ground? Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up, because that has been really the driver of a lot of the changes that we are pursuing are directly ideas that we've heard from D.C. residents. I, when I started chairing this committee in, in January, we said, first and foremost, we want to hear from the community. We want to hear what people would like to see when it comes to our number one issue around driving down gun violence. Mm-hmm. And that became the biggest focus of the year. And so I held a three-day gun violence prevention roundtable. Uh, one day was a virtual hearing where we heard from over 100 witnesses. Right. One day was an in-person hearing at the Anacostia Library in Ward 8, where we heard from D.C. residents about their experience and ideas. And one day was many of our government partners sitting around a table. um, And I purposely did it that way so it wouldn't be like me on the dais in a traditional hearing, that it was a round table for us to collectively use what we've learned from those residents and help it shape solutions moving forward. Um, And so those residents have told me things like, I'm scared to get in my car. I'm scared of being carjacked. I have seen the suspect who killed my brother on the street the next day, and I have to look him in the eye as he walks free. Things like I served 20 years of a prison sentence and I'm now back in my community and I want some support I want to give back and I am at a loss and I have no access to housing. And so there's a whole array of people we've heard from that really shape my perspective on how we can be targeted in the solutions that we as a government have a responsibility to lead on. So moving now to the legislation, the D.C. Council's position on crime in D.C. has kind of changed drastically. Just a few months ago, the city's legislative branch, you know, largely denounced D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser's crime bill. But now it's just passed your emergency crime bill, which is pretty similar to that one the mayor proposed a few months ago. In your eyes, do you know what changed in this legislative body? And, you know, how did you bring about this compromise that got this emergency crime bill across the finish line? Well, I am not in the finger pointing business. I am in the solutions business. And so when I work with all of our partners, um, with Mayor Bowser, with my council colleagues, uh, with folks who do prevention efforts and folks who do law enforcement, 
it's really important to me to start off on the assumption that I believe in folks' intentions. I believe that everybody who's in this space and in our government wants to see a safer city. And that belief that people are coming to the table in good faith helps me uh, earnestly hear from them their ideas about improvements and share with them ways that I believe we can accomplish multiple things at one time. And so I think it's really important for public safety that the executive and the council are working together. There is absolutely no reason to be on different sides of these issues. We all want a safer city. Not everybody has the same ideas about how to go about it, but part of my goal here was to really bring folks together for a package that could make a difference today, this summer, um, and do so in a way that the majority of uh, my colleagues and partners could feel good about. And that's how I'll continue to, to lead this committee. Now let's focus in on the actual details and changes in the law that this emergency crime bill brings. A key portion of this bill makes it easier for a person who's arrested for a violent crime to be held behind bars before trial. It's an issue called pretrial release. This was, at first, a major sticking point for council members. They didn't really like the higher chances of someone being held behind bars before trial. But here we are, and it is now easier for judges to hold suspects of violent crimes behind bars before their trial. How did we land here, and what are the specifics of the pretrial rules set in this emergency legislation? Yes, absolutely. So, Before the details of the bill, let me just zoom back for a moment for the general standard in this city and this country, which is that you are innocent until proven guilty, period. When it comes to if you're held before your trial in a detention setting, in D.C., you are presumed to be released, meaning, and that's a really good thing for a vast majority of our crimes. We don't want to be holding people because they failed to pay a ticket, Mm. for example. Um, And that's how a lot of states are really behind D.C. and a lot of those reforms that are really important for district residents because it's very disruptive to be detained. There are two major exceptions in D.C. law for when you can when you're not released pretrial. And that's one, if you're deemed a flight risk, meaning you might not show up to trial. And two, if you're deemed a danger to the community. And in my view, how we've been describing what danger to the community means is too limited and it hasn't been giving the judges the discretion they need to actually determine this person may be likely to go out and commit another violent crime and therefore we need to over-index on detaining them before their trial. And council member, are there different rules for kids and adults here? What we ended up proposing was a higher standard for juveniles that juveniles can be held pretrial if they've either committed a crime of violence while armed or they've committed some of our most egregious crimes that we're seeing right now with juveniles, even if they weren't armed, like carjacking, like assault with a knife. And for our adults, we broaden the language significantly to say, you can be held pretrial if you've committed a crime of violence, even if this is your first offense. As the police will tell you, even five years ago, we used to see people who are committing violent crimes. It might be their fifth or sixth or seventh arrest. Mm. We're now seeing people's first interaction with the criminal justice system as a violent crime for their first arrest. Right. And so it's a, it's a different problem we're trying to solve. And that's part of the reason that this is an emergency is we, we saw, you know, in the first three months of this year, over 100 cases where people were out on pretrial release 
and committed a crime of violence. That's not acceptable. We've got to get it under control and we've got to get the balance right. And I think what we passed is a good step. Now, we've been using this word emergency. You know, it characterizes the urgency of this moment, but it's also a technical term as far as legislation goes. Can you tell me what timing implications this emergency criminal bill now law has? You know, is it in effect now? How long will it last? You know, what's the reality there? The emergency means that it can take effect immediately. And technically, emergency bills are in place for 90 days. What we also passed was the first vote on a temporary bill, which does the same set of things. And temporary bills are in place for 225 days. So all that's to say, uh, I will be working with my team, with the community, with all of our partners and my colleagues and the mayor in the next several months on a permanent public safety package that really gets at a much broader array of interventions that I think will make a sustainable difference, um, which I'm happy to, to get into. But that permanent bill will then be permanent. And that, that's kind of how the process will work. Now, you mentioned a permanent criminal bill. You know, the last time the D.C. Council really made a huge effort to create a large sweeping permanent bill that you're kind of mentioning now was with the revised criminal code. And that was blocked by Congress. So do you see this, you know, effort you're talking about as kind of a revised criminal code round two? Well, I think with our criminal code, that will be a component of some of the interventions we're doing. And when I think about how we can improve public safety, I think about it kind of five key categories. The first is around preventing crime and violence. This, these are efforts that I want to improve upon around conflict de-escalation with our young people, mental health for our schools, making sure that we're empowering our violence prevention workers with the tools they need to work with young people, because much of their training was traditionally between for, for people ages 18 to 36, because several years ago, that's where we were seeing um, the most uptick in people who were committing violent crimes. Now we're seeing more of our violent crimes being committed by young people and uh, we have to intervene earlier and prevent some of that violence. We've been hearing from War 2 Councilmember Brooke Pinto. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about whether this new emergency crime bill is antithetical to the reforms passed during the Black Lives Matter movement. Stick around. Now, I think it's fair to say that this emergency criminal bill that was passed you know, represents a tightening of the law. You know, for instance, with pretrial release, you know, it's easier for judges to keep people behind bars. This comes, this tightening of laws approved by the D.C. Council comes just a few years after the Black Lives Matter movement that really called for, you know, a change in policing, a change in the criminal laws that really gives people, you know, more room to navigate and highlighted the negative impacts of harsh and tight laws. Do you see this tightening of laws with the emergency criminal bill as steps back, you know, on this reform that the Black Lives Matter movement brought? Do you see these things kind of in conflict? We can do both. We should continue reforming our public safety system to make sure that every one is respected and treated with dignity and care, that we have an accountable police department. Um, there are reforms that we put forward, a number of reforms, to make sure that police can engage in chokeholds, that they disciplinary decisions by the police chief are honored and can't be overturned. We've had reforms for our returning citizens, suggesting if you've 
spent 20 years of your sentence in prison, you can have the opportunity to petition the judge to review your your case and your sentence to determine if you've been rehabilitated to really combat the over-incarceration that judges were handing out in the 80s and 90s. Those are measures that I absolutely support, that I do not waver on, uh, that were important and continue to be important, and I'm going to continue to be a partner in that work. And I believe that we have to do more with prevention. We have to do more supporting our residents with opportunities that they need. And I believe if you do go out and commit a crime of violence, you have to be held accountable. We, we cannot have these rates of violence in our community. And I think we could do it all. And in a separate bill last week, the council also made it easier for police to chase you know, possible criminal suspects. Was this not allowed before? And can police chase suspects now? Sure. So we have a police chase policy in the district that essentially says police should consider if there's another alternative means uh, to pursue a suspect. And if they can't come up with one or they can figure out how to chase somebody with trying to keep that suspect safety uh, in mind and the surrounding public safety in mind, they should do so because we're a tight urban center. So you can imagine if there's a high speed chase could be a risk. And so those are things that they consider. That's always been part of their policy. Um, We had an officer who pursued an illegal chase against Kron Hilton um, several years ago, and he died. And it was really absolute travesty for not only his family, but our community. And I think people were looking for changes and, and so upset and frustrated as how this could happen. And so Um, Part of the police reform bill sought to ensure that those standards were properly adhered to, that if the safety of the suspect or the the public couldn't be ensured, um, that police chases would be more limited. Now, that bill went into effect, and how the police lawyers interpreted that language was so overly broad to say, we can never engage in a chase because how can we prove that there's no way to risk the suspect's danger? Sometimes there are some dangers in a chase, but we have to weigh that with if there's a you know ongoing crime happening, we have to follow that suspect. Yeah. We have to intervene. And so what uh, my bill does was kind of clarify and codify the previous policy that suggests, look, look for all alternative um, and try to ensure the safety of the suspect and the public. And if you can't, you can pursue a chase. And I'm really pleased that my colleagues um, supported that bill overwhelmingly. And I'm glad that the police came to me uh, with this problem, because as I said earlier, we're in the solutions business. Um, and so that's what we need more of with all of our partners is continued communication. When someone identifies a gap in the system, I want to know about it so we can try to help solve it. Now, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the D.C. Council has tried to make major moves in the realm of the city's criminal law. But Congress you know, stepped in and blocked it last time. They called it soft on crime, this revised criminal code back in the spring. As you look forward, how do you plan to deal with the threat of a congressional blockade? Well, opposition to what the council was doing in the past was purely optical and not based on substance. And it was really disappointing of congressional leadership on on both parties. Um, And the revised criminal code 
was an effort to modernize our code and bring it into the 21st century. This is something that 35 states did 40 years ago. This was not some huge soft on crime effort. This was a a really helpful bill uh, to modernize our code, something that prosecutors and judges, victims and defendants were all part of uh, to make sure because it will help with public safety when there's a clear and concise code and all these offenses aren't layered on top of one another. And so that was very frustrating um, and a lot of misinformation that went out there. For example, you know, carjacking right now, there's a maximum uh, sentence of 40 years that has literally never been given out. Uh, 98.9% of our cases are 15 years or less. The revised criminal code said that the maximum was 24 years. And the Speaker of the House went on Fox News saying the D.C. Council is trying to decriminalize carjacking. It's a much higher offense than in almost every state, even at 24 years. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. I say that to say, though, my goal in this permanent package is to bring folks along the way. And that includes our congressional partners. I wish we were a state. We're not there yet. And so in the meantime, I have a responsibility uh, to ensure that the laws we are passing at the council are improving public safety in our city. And in, in order to make sure I'm effective at that, I've got to work with our congressional partners and I'm going to bring them along the way uh, to better protect against a later veto that, that could be brewing. And as we close up here, there's long been a blame game going on between D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and D.C. Council Chair Phil Mendelson. You know, it's been on display in press conferences, in side comments, you know, in press releases. Both point to the other as responsible for this kind of rise in crime we're seeing in the district. It's been a bumpy road coming up to this point for the last six months, you know, all of 2023. There's been a lot of tumult. There's been a lot of derision, you know, in the Wilson building over how to deal with crime. And residents are starting to really voice this concern loudly. Do you expect this bumpiness to continue? Or do you think that the mayor's office and the D.C. Council are in stride now and, you know, District residents can be hopeful that you all will deal with crime together. Look, I think healthy debate is healthy. Um, I certainly don't own all answers or solutions. I continue to learn from my colleagues in the council, from the mayor, from what I'm seeing leaders in other states do. So I think a little bit of bumpiness is good to make sure that changes sometimes do need to be slow and deliberate because. We have a responsibility to keep the entire public safe and, and pursue justice while we're doing that. And so that that is a balance that's important to get right. But I plan to lead this committee in a way that can bring many voices into that conversation and hopefully do so in a way that will be sustainable. I don't want measures that we're passing today to be overturned in two years if somebody else was was chairing this committee or in a couple of years. And so I, I think I can do both of those things and I'm going to try to do so intentionally to bring folks together. Well, time will surely tell. But for now, Councilmember Brooke Pinto, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Luke. And before we go, I should note, soon after recording this interview, a new police chief was nominated by Mayor Muriel Bowser. She is resilient and ready for this role. Her name is Pamela Smith, and she is the former chief of the U.S. Park Police and was most recently an assistant chief at the Metropolitan Police Department. As a law enforcement officer and a member of this community, I am troubled 
by the crime that is plaguing our communities, which is why it is important for me to be engaged in wanting to make the District of Columbia safer. Pamela Smith is now set to be the new chief of police in D.C. Now that's pending a confirmation from the D.C. Council come this fall. Since the nomination, Councilmember Brooke Pinto has put her support behind Smith. So has Council Chair Phil Mendelson, as has the D.C. Police Union. And that'll do it for us today here on the DMV Download Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and let us know how we're doing. You know, give us some stars, give us a review on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends, family, a stranger about the show. We always love sharing these stories with more people. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland. You can also listen online and on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.